I'm going to be reading some more scriptures throughout Ephesians as we talk about this family this morning, but I, I just wanted to read that as, as, a, as the beginning. So I, I entitled this message, The Family's Value. Uh, and we're going through the Harambe vision series, Reconciled, a vision for Harambe. So this is the Reconciled Family message. So I want to just reiterate uh, our mission statement again. The, the full mission vision statement for Harambe is, By the grace of God, we are a diverse family, renewed and reconciled together with God by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. Because of the love of Jesus, we are compelled to share his message of reconciliation and renewal so that everyone in our community would experience the love of Jesus and be empowered to follow him into eternal life. And then the short version is working together for the reconciliation and renewal of all people in Jesus. So from that vision, the elders sat down and we've been praying and, and seeking certain outcomes that we want to see as we, as we pursue that reality. And we've gone through the list. Caleb started with new birth. Um, he talked about authentic community. I talked about spiritual maturity for too long. And this morning, I'm going to be talking about healthy family. <clears throat> so healthy family is this idea of leveraging godly wisdom, counsel, and instruction for building healthy family. A healthy family of families. That's kind of a weird way to say it, but it's, it's intentional. So, to get started, I, I wanted to read a poem that hopefully will make sense to you as we continue. It's, not, it's, a, it's a song, really, uh, by one of my favorites, Bob Dylan. <clears throat> and me reading it is about, him, is about the same as him singing it. So, uh, I decided not to play it for you all. Just, I'll just read it. Uh, it's called Bob Dylan's Dream. So he says, while riding on a train going west, I fell asleep for to take my rest. I dreamed a dream that made me sad concerning myself and the first few friends I had. With half, uh, with half damp eyes, I stared to the room where my friends and I had spent many an afternoon. We, were t- we together weathered many a storm, laughing and singing till the early hours of the morn. By the old wooden stove where our hats were were hung, our words were told, our songs were sung, where we longed for nothing and were quite satisfied, talking and joking about the world outside. And then in the last refrain, I skipped a few, but he says says this, and and the song is sort of a lament as he sings it. And at this point, the the emotion, he, he sings out this sort of lamentful verse where he says, I wish, I wish, I wish in vain that we could sit simply in that room again, $10,000 at the drop of a hat, and I'd give it all gladly if our lives could be like that. Now, I remember a ton of stuff from my early life. I just, I just have a, a memory that goes way back. And I talked to my brother who's a year and a half younger than I am, and he says, you're just making this stuff up. And he's probably partly right, because memory is not just a snapshot of history, but as I, as I thought about strong family, I thought about my own family and my own experience in family. And it's interesting that my brother and I had almost opposite experiences in the same family with the same parents, many of the same experiences. And so we're all we're all individual people that are thrown into these this thing called a family. And as I grew up uh, thinking about kind of the themes of my life. This one theme emerges as I think about my journey 
and, and understanding my family and the family of God. And it was listening to my dad's stories about his life before the cross. So these stories didn't really have the desired effect on me, I don't think. Because as I listened, my dad would share a, a cool old story about him and his friends having fun riding dirt bikes or him taking his dad's car or sneaking out or stealing something. And, you know, and then all of these cool stories would have this sad ending, which was, but that was before the cross. And to me, it was like, man, I started to believe this lie. I started to believe this narrative that somehow I was born into a family where I was never going to get to have fun because I'm a Christian. Like, why, why can't, why did I have to be born a Christian? Why couldn't I just, like, have a before-the-cross experience, you know? This sounds like so much fun. And obviously that narrative, you know, is being fueled by the enemy. But I began to believe in it, and it was a slow buildup in my life as I experienced this. And in my family, we, we were super involved in the churches that my parents were involved in. We, we moved uh, one time, and so we, we moved churches, but my parents were there. Anything that was going on, um, we, we were part of a WANA club. My dad was a leader in that. We were, we were volunteering to help people. My parents were there. They, they served in the church in whatever capacity. My mom was at the prayer meetings, at the ladies' stuff. Um, but I began to believe this idea more and more that the church and my family were holding me back from really experiencing, you know, life, true life. <clears throat> and I <clears throat> decided at some point that I was going to go find it. I didn't know exactly what I was looking for, um, but I had a whole culture that was urging me on, you know, this is, where you, this is what you need, you know, to really have true life. And I, I began to sort of go in that direction. <clears throat> Long story short... I failed, and the world failed me, and I couldn't escape the truth, and Jesus called me back to himself. It started with truth. I wrestled with this concept of truth when I first got into college, and Jesus made it very clear to me that there was a truth, and then later on I discovered that it was him, that the truth is personal, that it's someone that you can know, which is bizarre, but it's really cool. And I remember when I sort of came full circle, having gone on this journey, uh, I really, the, the image that comes to my mind, and I didn't, bring, I didn't show the video because it didn't really work, but is of Pinocchio and his friends turning into jackasses in the pool hall. That's, that was like what I was all about. <clears throat> I, can, I just, I think of my friends and I sitting in the room like Bob Dylan sings, laughing and joking till the early hours of the morn, and just sort of braying like jackasses. That's what we were doing. And, uh, so I remember this night where I, I came full circle and I was at this, there's a, lot, there's a lot to this story, but I'm fast forwarding to this point where I'm in this room, this sort of cabin kitchen at this youth camp, and it's a dark winter night and there's a fire going and my, my family's there. My brother was a youth pastor and he asked me to help him out with his youth group, you know, and uh, I was like, oh, okay. And then... Uh, my parents had come because they were like making dinner or something for them. So the, my, my family's there and I was sitting there in this room laughing and joking and talking with these people and looking around and then I almost, I think, I'm pretty sure my whole family was there for some reason or another. Two brothers, a sister and my parents. And I remember that, I remember that scene as I looked around and it was like God helped me to understand like what I had trudged off to find was right here all along. 
But it wasn't my family that I found necessarily. It was that I found Jesus who enabled me to be reconciled to my family. And I sat there with this feeling that I, that I probably was looking for in the past, but I didn't know where to find it. And it was found when I was reconciled to Christ, when he, when he brought me back to himself. And then he brought me back to my family, this big, this big sort of circle that I, that I went on. And it is, it's that scene, that, that, that part so it just resonates in my memory. It's a very sharp memory that I have. And God, through that time, was just slowly breaking down these, these lies that I was believing about who he was and who I was and what life was all about. And, and then I began to realize, like, actually, I had a ton of fun in my life, you know. I sort of uh, looked down on my whole life and thought it was just like nothing. But, man, it was, it was amazing what God had provided for me, <clears throat> the privilege in which I was raised. And... <clears throat> It was like I could see more clearly now, and I had a new heart toward my family, toward the bigger family that I was now a part of, because it wasn't just that my family was there. It was that there was all these people there, and it was like I was connected to this whole group of people, this, this family of families, and I've been pursuing that ever since, by God's grace, imperfectly. In a book that I read, there's a quote. It's called The Relational Soul. And it says, our true self is found in Christ. It emerges in a participatory relationship with God in the Son by the Spirit. David Benner points to this reality when he writes, we do not find our true self by seeking it. Rather, we find it by seeking God. The the parable of the prodigal in Luke 15 illustrates this truth. And that was the experience that I had when, when I began to seek God. I began to discover who I really was, who my true self should be. So family is this place of relationship. That's why we call them our relatives, right? These are the people that we are forced to relate to from early on. And family is a bond that is just, it transcends our normal friendships. You can have friends that come and go, but you're sort of always family, right? And this is the time of year where that is either a good thing or an uncomfortable thing or a bad thing or, or a weight, whatever it might be, probably going to be getting together with our family pretty soon. <clears throat> so today I want to look at, look at the fact that God designed the family for us to know him and to fulfill his great commission. And God is inviting everyone here into a deeper relationship with him through his family, his household, the church. So God designs the family from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. The scripture says, God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. God understands this relationship of creation to these people as the relation of a father to his children. We see it throughout scripture in Isaiah chapter 6. God is saying, and yet, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We we are all formed by your hand. In Jeremiah, God speaking to Jeremiah says, I thought to myself, I would love to treat you as my own children. I wanted nothing more than to give you this beautiful land, the finest possessions in the world. I look forward to you, to your calling me father. 
and I wanted you to never turn from me. So we see from the very beginning when in creation, when God puts Adam and Eve, this first family, so to speak, he sees them as his children. And he, and he, he designed the family so that we could understand his character and nature, so that we could understand this connection to somebody, to, this connection to a father. That trips a lot of people up because sometimes we don't have the best fathers or we, don't, we didn't have a father or maybe we had a great father, but he's not, he's not Jesus. I had a great dad who was totally imperfect. <laughs> he, was a, he was a wounded and imperfect guy that tried to follow Jesus and he did a great job of trying to follow Jesus. And Jesus' great, God's grace covers a multitude of sins. And it's this experiential knowledge of the family, of these relationships that bind us, that God wants us to understand the relationship he wants us to have with him. I remember becoming a father. I remember the questions, are you ready to have, are you ready to have a baby? Well, well, we made one. I guess I'm ready, right? Um, it's coming. And I were, I, in my mind, you know, I'm kind of weird. People are like, are you ready to have a family? And I would think, well, I don't know how to answer the question because is there a test? Like, how could I prove to you that I'm ready to have a baby? Like, I don't, like what do I do to be ready to have a baby, you know, besides the act? And uh, it was like, I don't know. So then we have Zoe. And I, I don't think I'd really held too many babies in my whole life up to that point. Like, I wasn't all about, like, holding babies, you know. I wasn't running for office or anything like that. And so I sort of avoided them because they're just annoying, loud, selfish little tyrants, you know. They, they don't care about other people. And uh, you can't talk to them. You can't reason with them, right? I actually recently visited uh, Quincy. Some of you guys know Quincy. Who, they just had their first son. His name's Kalel. And he's, he was six weeks old when I visited. And Quincy was uh, frustrated by the fact that he wasn't learning very fast. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. So funny. And uh, so... I hadn't held very many babies, but then Zoe was born. Like, Zoe came to be, you know. And at first, she looked like this purple alien, you know, like right away. And I was like, whoa, I hope that improves, you know. And then they, they scrubbed her off. And I mean, her eyes were like pure black, you know, like when the, in the movies when the monster goes, ah, and then they're all black. I was like, whoa, like, what is that? And uh, so I, they took her over, and like the nurses just like, they, they took her. And they're just like, like spraying her off, flipping her over. Just like, I'm like, I remember thinking like, be careful. Like, what are you, what are you doing? You know, and this lady probably does that like a hundred times a day, right? So then she brings her back. She's like, here you go, dad, hold her. And holding Zoe was not like holding a baby. It wasn't like anything else. It was like no other person. Like holding Zoe was just normal. It was natural to me. Like she was with me. She was like part of who I was. And it was, it was in that understanding of having a, having a child, I, I began to have more experiential knowledge of how God felt toward me. When he calls himself a father, there's this connection that he has with us that is beyond sort of the theological academic descriptions of like our anthropology and you know, whatever it is. It's just this emotional, real connection to somebody who is just naturally you and you love them. Like, you love them, not like, oh, I, I love them. It's like, you love them. Like, you do anything for them. Like, it doesn't matter, you know. Like, when there's only a tiny bit of ice cream left, 
you give it to them. You don't eat it yourself. Like, you're, you just are connected to this person. I remember leaving the hospital, you know, and then the, you know, they come down to make sure that you know how to use a car seat, which is just like, oh, you know. Anyways, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm, we're driving out, and it was like, they're letting us leave? Like, are, are they crazy? Like, what's going on here? Like, we just get to keep her. Okay. Like, and then Angie and I are driving down the road, and it's like, here we are, Angie and I and the baby. Like, now we have a baby. We went, to, we went to Subway. It's like, can we bring her in? Like, what do we do? You know? Like, we didn't know. <laughs> we can't leave her in the car, right? Right? We can't leave her in the car. You know, put her on the table in her little seat. And it was so natural to me. And I, re- I remember the question when people, are you ready? It was like, yeah, I guess I, guess I was ready. I guess I didn't understand that it wasn't going to be like this groundbreaking, like tragic change of my life that's going to destroy me. It was like, it added to us. And it was so natural. It just seemed like it, it always was. It's like now we just have a baby and that's just how we are. We're a family, right? And then, you know, of course we had some more. <laughs> but that connection of being a father is so, God, God calls himself that very intentionally. He designed that reality so we would understand how he feels toward us. And he's not our father. He's not our messed up, sinful, imperfect dad that we function with. He's the perfect father. He's the one that when your dad treated you badly or didn't treat you at all, you thought to yourself, I wish I knew somebody like this. He's that one. He's the perfect one. When, you, when your conscience told you, you know what, dad, you shouldn't be like that. God's not like that. And he's the one that put this reality into place so we would understand who he is. So we would understand the, the connection that he wants us to have with him, but also with one another. Now, as we talk about family today, I want to stress something very important. So many times in the church large, the church you know, at large in general, we stress family to the exclusion of a large part of our culture, who God has called to be single. The highest expression of devotion to Christ is not a nuclear family. You're not somehow failing if God has called you to be single or if you don't have a family or if you have a family, you're married and you don't have kids. God has called us into a family of families. God puts us into families. I mean, families exist. We would not be here otherwise. Some, at some point in time, two complementary beings became one and that makes a baby and we were born. So we need to remember that we're called into God's family into relationships that are supernaturally unified by the Spirit of God. And remember that we are called to follow Jesus, who was never married, he never owned a house, and he laid down his life in obedience to the Father. So we understand that God has prepared a special relational picture and structure to bless us and to know him, but the family that he designed has a purpose, it has a mission. So God leads us to understand that he has a plan and a purpose. In Ephesians chapter 3, the scripture says in verse 9 through 12, and to bring light to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who, was crea- who created all things so that through the church, 
the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. The body of Christ, the household of God, the church, the family of God is to express manifold wisdom. Manifold, right? If you're an auto mechanic, you probably think exhaust manifold. If you're not, I don't know what you think of when you think of a manifold. But you can think of many folds. But an exhaust manifold takes the flow of the engine exhaust and it comes out all these ports and it's, it, there's many of them, right? And then it kind of brings them into one and shoots them out the back of the car, right? And destroys the earth. And so the manifold brings all these various things together into one. And God is bringing, the manifold wisdom of God is that the mystery of the gospel is that all people are invited into his family. Every ethnicity, every gender is, is there's an there's a equalization that has occurred and God is bringing everybody into his family because he calls everyone sons. And it's like, well, that's the patriarchal God talking. No, what's happening when he calls everyone sons is that he's saying to women in their culture who would never be sons, who would never get an inheritance, who would have to be married off to somebody, that you're a son in God's family, that you are an heir just like anybody else in God's family. It's amazing what God is, what God is doing in his manifold wisdom bringing the church together. I'm sorry that it's so cold in here. Everyone, everyone's just like freezing and crossing their arms. Maybe you're crossing your arms because you hate what I'm saying, but I'm hoping it's because you're cold. <laughs> and so God is bringing together this church. Not so, not so, the family is not the end all or the idol that we follow as Christians. The family is a vehicle that God is using to accomplish his mission on the earth. Remember, he said, go, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's still God's plan. And he's using the family of families to do that now. We need to remember Jesus' teaching. They said, hey, Jesus, you know, he's in there teaching. And his mom and his brothers show up and say, tell Jesus to come out here, you know. And he says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And he points to his disciples and he said, look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and mother. Jesus said it. He, he's making a new family connection for the people of God that supersedes our earthly family. The call of God sometimes calls us away from our family. But the family is also a place to multiply image bearers of God. Be fruitful and multiply implies that parents are raising up children who know God's mandate and will seek to carry it on. Adam and Eve weren't going to last forever, so they needed to pass on not just kids and let them run wild. Kids running wild is hard to deal with. That's why he brought the flood on the earth. No. <laughs> they need to raise up kids that, that know what the mandate is. So they can continue to pass on that mandate. We need to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that's what, God, that's what God has for us. That's what he wants us to be about. And then they pass it on to their kids. So there's, it's implying so much in that, in that simple mandate. It's interesting too because Adam couldn't do it and Eve couldn't do it. 
God didn't create the battle of the sexes. Like, who can do the mandate better? It's like, you're going to have to work together on this one. Careful with my hand signs on that one. So the family, then, is the primary environment God designed for learning to observe everything Jesus has taught. And I want to mention just a few things about how, how this works out. But the most effective thing in your family, if you have kids, if you don't have kids, whatever structure your family is, if you're single, what family are you a part of? You're part of the family of God. But in a family, as you're, as you're raising up your kids, the sort of number one effective practice in making disciples in the family of God and in a nuclear family is being present and being together. It's spending time with people and, getting, and building that relationship. Just as God wants us to build our relationship with him, he wants us to build the relationship with one another. In fact, in his sovereignty, he put us together as a family so that we would know one another and become more effective passer honors of his mission and more complete people, and even so that we would become more completely our true selves that he made us to be by getting to know other people, not having to copy or try to be somebody else, but the family of God helping us to, to understand who he made us to be and to express that most truly. Another quote from uh, Richard Plass, he says, looking back on our lives, he's a pastor for 25 years, planted a church, a ton ton of ministry experience. And he says, looking back on our lives and knowing what we know about the relational reality of life, we have come to this conclusion. The greatest gift any of us can give another is a transforming, receptive presence. Programs, policies, strategy sessions, staff meetings, even sermons will be long forgotten. What will bear fruit and be remembered no matter who we are or what we do is a presence that bears the receptive presence of Christ. In other words, the best thing we can do for anyone is to live in and from our true self. Now, there's, it's a great book. It's called The Relational Soul. If you want to read it, you can understand what he means fully by the true self, but it's the, the core of who God created us to be, empowered by the Spirit and expressing Christ through the individuality that he put into us. So this has been expressed in many ways. And there are many ways for families to be. There are many forms that families take. But the reality is that intentionally spending time together, seeking to relate in healthy ways to God and to one another will bear much fruit. We learn in Scripture that marriage is meant to accomplish God's purposes, not to fulfill us. It's submission to and relationship with Jesus. And we, in, it, in it, we have the strength to be pruned so we can bear more fruit, godly character, in our lives and become the true self that God intended when he designed us. So in fact, God designed marriage, the sort of beginning of a family, to be a tool to make us more like Jesus. We sort of sometimes think of marriage as a way to make someone else more like we want them to be, right? And when two people are at that, that's tough. If two people are pursuing Christ together, it makes it a lot easier because God's going to get there one way or another. I can testify. God designed the family, our first and most permanent relationships, to teach us about his nature and character so that we would grow in our understanding of his purpose for our lives and his family. 
God desires that his family would be fruitful and multiply and filling the earth. And Jesus reiterated this mandate in the Great Commission. We've all heard it. He says, first, don't forget this part, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus is in charge. And he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them, these new disciples, to obey all the commands that I've given you. And be sure of this, I am always with you, even to the end of the age. I love that part too. Jesus is always with us. But remember, he says, while you're going, this is while you're going, disciplize people. He doesn't say, go somewhere else and do what you think is my work. He's saying, in your everyday lives, disciplize people. Make disciples in the everyday things that you do. This is why spending time together with people that are following Jesus and are like Jesus rubs off on us so well. He's making disciples. It's making disciples in our everyday in the everyday things of life. This is what family this is what a family is made to do. It's the purpose of a family. So marriage makes us more like Christ. Families help us understand who God is and what his mission is for us. And families are in fact intended to be little discipleship schools. Understand that God's family is seeking to adopt anyone who will put their trust in Jesus' work on the cross and ongoing lordship in their lives. Anyone who believes in the name of the one he sent is called a child of God and receives the Spirit, God's empowering presence, which leads you to place your body, place, <clears throat> leads you to your place in the body, the family of God. But and here's my, last, here's my last thing. So first, God created the family so that we could know what he's like. God created the family to accomplish his purposes. How do we do it? And how do we want to do it? So the family needs attention. It needs constant work. It needs cultivation. We, we have to grow in our relationship and in, in our ability to relate to one another. There's a great book about marriage, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. And he, along with many other people, points out that marriage takes constant work because you're not the same person you were when you first got married. Angie and I will be going on 21 years here uh, next year. I'm not the same person I was 21 years ago, thank God. Wow. If I was that person, whew. And Angie's still with me thank God. But Angie's not the same person that I married 21 years ago, thank God. And our relationship takes constant work because we're constantly growing and changing. There's cultivation that needs to take place. There's, there's attention that needs to take place. Marriage takes work. Family takes work. And marriage and family do just happen. That's why I have a 17-year-old daughter who I'm who's playing soccer this morning pagan but uh I remember holding the little the little tiny Zoe I remember her like it was yesterday you know and people say oh time flies like it's very true and the problem is that family just happens if you're not whether or not you're cultivating your relationships whether or not you're working on helping people know God marriage just happens if you're not working on cultivating your relationships, marriage is still going to happen. You're still going to be living life together. And 15 years down the road, you're just cohabitating and you're like, who is that person? Because you don't really know each other anymore. If you haven't been getting to know on an ongoing basis, 
your, your children and your, your spouse. I remember talking to a young man in, in, who was in Bible college, and he was talking about he was going to get married, and he was uh, telling me, like, oh, I'm so excited to get married and joking around, you know, and he says, you know, we're just, in our honeymoon, we're not even going to leave the, the room, you know, and he kind of snickers, and I'm like, so when you first learn how to ride a bike, like, could you just do it, like, right off the bat, or did you start with training wheels? And he was like, what do you, you know, and then he kind of started thinking about it, and I'm like, so just, you know, be patient with yourselves. <laughs> You might want to go out to eat a few times. <laughs> because marriage is a growing relationship. It's something that starts and it's ongoing and it takes constant cultivation. It takes constant attention. When we talk about strong family at Harambe, we're not talking about only this family right here. We're talking about the, the families that make this up, whatever form they take. We, we want to we strengthen those families. We have Ken and, and Jen who are, who've been studying marriage and marriage counseling, let's say, uh, for the last couple of years. And we want to we look in on every marriage and, and say, how are you doing? Because your marriage needs work. Marriage is something that needs work, and God gave you this family to help you do that work. And growing in Christ is something that you just can't do like Rambo. You just can't do on your own. Growing in Christ is something that takes the other pieces of the body to build you up, to sort of rub against you the wrong way and, and shave off those parts that need to go. Growing in Christ is a family uh, initiative. The other thing that we want to strengthen is just if you have kids, like what do your family devotions look like? How, how are we leading our children to, to know who Jesus is? to know the truth of, of who God is. One of the things that I could not escape from when I tried to run away from God, when I thought I was going to go find whatever it was, was the truth that just kept pursuing my mind. It, kept, it stayed with me. Like People would be like, oh, I know you're a Christian. Like, What do you think about that? And I'm like, what? I'm not a Christian. Like, why are you? You know, like Peter, like, I don't know Jesus. F you, you know. But I'm like, in my heart, like I knew it was true. I just didn't want it to be. Because there had been a foundation that God laid in my life of the truth that I couldn't escape from. And my parents didn't do family devotions every day and do it like perfectly, but we spent time together serving in the church. We spent time together praying and talking about Jesus and, and learning, learning their, their testimonies. When my dad, at one point, after like, I think I was like 15 or 16, decided to try to do this formalized family devotion like it was too late for me like I was just like what are you doing and uh such a I was such a wicked little brat God's still working on that part too but parents we have like a few different um resources that one of them is an advent study that we're going to go into in December and we have a, an advent guide which is a weekly sort of thing where you can, yeah, the Advent Community Guide. So it just takes you through the four weeks or five weeks of Christmas, and it has a general sort of Advent family devotional time. You read part of the story, you sing a song, you pray together. It has references to this thing called the Jesus Storybook Bible, if you have kids that age, and you can go through it on a weekly basis and sort of think about 
Christmas. And our preaching series is going to correspond to this uh, Advent guide. And this would be a great time if you haven't been doing like a sort of regular sort of family time talking about God and, and answering questions for your kids. This might be a good way to kick it off by using this, the special season of Christmas to say, hey, let's, let's do this together. We also have a family devotional guide that we stole, well, we licensed from uh, the Village Church in Texas. They put out a lot of good resources, and rather than recreate the wheel, this is sort of a, a guide to say, what, what, what could family devotions look like in our context and in our family? So I'll ha- I have these available print or media or print or web, you know, whatever you want. Uh, and then we also have, now Mike and Sandy aren't here, uh, but we also have been endeavoring to have parental mentors available. So the gospel says, older women should teach the younger women. Older men should teach the younger men. And people that have grown kids can, can answer a lot of questions to people that have new kids. You just know stuff about life, about how kids are, and like what's wrong and what's not wrong, and what you have to do and what you don't have to do. Because you just, when we had our first baby, Zoe, who just would not stop crying for like hours, it's like, okay, let's go back to the hospital, you know, like trade her in or whatever we had to do. Like, she's not working right. And then in our next babies, it was like, oh, they cry and stuff. We're like, we know what's going on. We're, we we kind of know the routine now, and we, we work through it. So people that have, are more advanced than us, in life experience, the gospel says they should be thinking about teaching those who have less experience. And those with less experience in life can look to them and say, help me understand this. So we're going to continue to try to make that work. It's been hard. It's been hard to get that going, get it off the ground. Um, And we'll also try to continue to do ongoing training and conversations about, about parenting. We have Sunday school, obviously. Our kids are probably freezing in the Sunday school room too. Um, and we have uh, a new curriculum that we're going through this year called What's in the Bible. I'm pretty sure we're going with that one for next year as well. We're going through it for Christmas regardless. Um, it seems like a pretty good take on looking at the whole story of God through, through one year. It was made by a guy named Phil Vischer, who was one of the first VeggieTales kind of co-creator or whatever. Uh, so don't let that turn you off or whatever, like <laughs> if, you, if you're not into that. But it's not VeggieTales. I'll just say that. We also have access, you have access to the New City Catechism. So as, a, as parents, uh, Redeemer Church in New York with a guy named Tim Keller, if that means anything to you, has put together a catechism. Catechism means basically talking back and forth or questions and answers. And uh, the, the New City Catechism, can you bring up that website or is it not working? It might not work. I put the website into the little presentation. But it's a web... Oh, there it is. It's a website. It's an app. And you can buy a book if you want, you know, if you're still stuck in the superstition of paper. But uh, you can go through this catechism. It's 52 weeks. It's 52 weeks. So you can take one sort of question and answer a week, and you go through... A catechism is looking at all the basic realities of who God is, and they've compiled it from the history of catechisms, the Westminster Catechism, the Heidelberg. Like, there's these old statements, and, and Sophia knows some of the old catechism stuff where it's like, who, who ist God? Thou hast been around for many millenniums. And it's just like, they've, they've translated it into our, dumbed it down for us, you know, 
to our modern speak. And so this is a great tool. It has, uh, over on the left-hand bar, it has like the little book, and it has a little uh, text box, and it has a, a little, uh, no, over on the right side of the page, sorry, the little book. And then they go click on the text box. It gives you like a resource that explains what's going on there. It, it could be a video. It could be an article. It could be a, a scripture. That's by a commentary by John Calvin. And then the next one, if you click on the other, what is that? Oh, prayer hands. It has a prayer that corresponds to this catechism. And the way that this works is it's question and answer time. The, the, the parents ask the question, what is our only hope in life and death? And then there's a response. And you kind of get your kids to memorize this response. So that's how you go through a catechism. And this is made one, one per week for 52 weeks. So if you, if you want to think like forward about next year, like, well, let's get that app and let's get going on that. And, and it has two different versions, like a kid version and an, an adult version. It's like, we don't know the catechisms. I, mean, I don't know how many of you have been catechized, but uh, it's the basic teaching of, of the church. And it's great for us to just refresh and go through, but you can also lead your kids through it. Um, and let them do the kids version. I remember we started doing it in our group when uh, James was younger, and it had little songs too that came along with it. And he just loved to dance. He just wanted to dance to the song in the catechism app. It was it was really funny. You know, I was like, "When are we going to do the catechism?" I'm like, "Wow, this kid's a little budding theologian." It's like, no, he's a, he's a dancer. So these are these are uh, resources that. We want to make available, and if you have any questions or you know how to use them or how to how to go through them, like come and talk to one of the elders, and we want to help you engage with that. So that being said, I just want to conclude by reading Ephesians chapter five uh, from twenty one through Ephesians chapter six four, and this is the sort of some of the concluding implications of the gospel for those who have put their faith in Christ. Paul's saying, here's how you can now live as it pertains to sort of family relationships. He says in Ephesians 5.21, And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of his body, the church. And as the church submits to Christ, so you, wives, should submit to your own husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean and washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church, and we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way that Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you, and you will have a long life on earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. And just to add to that, 
Fathers is a generic term for parents. Parents, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Let's pray. And I, I, I've taken this prayer from Ephesians uh, chapter 3. Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth, I pray that from your glorious unlimited resources you will empower Harambe Church with inner strength through the Spirit. I pray that Christ will make his home in our hearts as we trust in him. That our roots will grow down into your love and keep us strong. Grant us the power to understand as all your people should how wide, how long, how high, and how deep your love is. Help us experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Father, complete us with all the fullness of life and power that comes from you. Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. So now we come to the table.